Welcome to episode 34 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024. Fire Safety Matters is once again serving as the lead media partner for the exhibition. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media and also the founder of Fire Safety Matters magazine. Morning, Mark. How's things with you? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Brian. It's been a busy summer and, uh, you know, now we're looking ahead to the FIA guy that you're obviously putting together for us. And uh, we've got our fingers crossed that... FSM might be nominated uh, for a couple more awards for the end of the year, and uh, it's, it's been a it's been a positive year, and there's a lot going on in the sector at the moment. And I'm really looking forward to doing the news in this episode of the podcast because there's some quite juicy stuff to cover. But like I always say, Brian, you don't have to wait for this podcast to come out to get the latest news. You can go to our website. It's completely free to go to the website and you can go to fsmatters.com if you can't remember that. Throw into a search engine, Fire Safety Matters, up we pop. And you can see all the latest news, prosecutions, products and services and our feature articles on there as well. You can sign up to our weekly e-newsletter completely for free and you can get all this sent straight to your inbox. There's over 54,000 of you currently subscribed, so thank you very much. You can subscribe to get the magazine for free four times a year alongside the FIA guide, as I've just mentioned, the FIA guide. So you can register for free on that. We do so many webinars, and I'll probably touch on that a bit later, actually, Brian, too. On the webinars tab of our website, you can look at all of our past webinars, Watch them again on demand for free and get CPD certificates. You can obviously follow us on X, which used to be Twitter, or LinkedIn to see all the latest headlines as well. So lots of ways you can engage with us without the podcast. But we're very grateful to all of you for actually engaging in this podcast. And uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, we always start off with the news. And Brian, I think it's your turn this episode to start. What's the first news story you've got for us? It is indeed, Mark. As of the 1st of October, the Building Safety Regulator became the building control authority for all higher-risk buildings in England. This means that developers will no longer be able to choose the building control body they use for building new residential buildings over 18 metres tall or seven storeys with at least two residential units and hospitals and care homes that meet the same height threshold. Developers must also apply to the Building Safety Regulator for building control approval before starting building work on any projects involving higher-risk buildings. The Building Safety Act 2022 places new legal responsibilities on those who are involved in the design, construction and occupation of high-risk buildings. This means that everyone undertaking building work will need to be able to demonstrate compliance with the law and, what's more, provide hard evidence of this if and when challenged to do so. This will ensure more stringent project oversight with clear accountability for the safety of high-risk buildings throughout their entire life cycle. In addition to the Building Safety Act, Mark, the Building Higher Risk Buildings Procedures England Regulations 2023 came into force on 17th of August. This document sets out the building control processes that apply to all high risk building projects. The new regulations deliver the recommendations made by Dame Judith Hackett in the report entitled Building a Safer Future. They cover the technical detail underpinning the new and somewhat more stringent regime for the design and construction of high risk buildings as well as the details of the new in-occupation safety regime for these structures. The Building Safety Regulator will now carry out its function as a building control authority through teams that include a registered building inspector and any other specialist required to assess a building control application submission. These will be called multidisciplinary teams. Further to this mark, the Building Safety Regulator will lead these teams to ensure effective regulatory decisions guide the structure of an inspection schedule and also input to any requirements, i.e. the conditions, that may be applied to an approval. This is not a new regime in terms of the assessment or plans and site inspections, Mark, but it's most certainly a new method of delivery. To strengthen regulatory oversight, building work on higher-risk buildings will have to pass through a rigorous process consisting of three gateway points. Building safety regulator approval must be obtained before the commencement of building work, ahead of any significant changes made during construction and also when building work is completed. It will be deemed an offence to start building work without the building safety regulator's approval, while the regulator harbours enforcement powers to take action where proven breaches do occur. Once any high-risk buildings has received its building control certificate, it can then be registered with the building safety regulator, and registration must be completed by the building's principal accountable person. The building safety regulator will call in registered buildings at regular intervals to make sure accountable persons and principal accountable persons 
are regularly assessing and continuously managing fire and structural safety risks for their high-rise buildings. I know you have some points to add on this story, Mark. Yeah, I do. And what I would say is you can see the story in full on our website, which is obviously fsmatters.com or just under search engine fire safety matters. But in our own search box, just um, the title of this article is Regulator Now Building Control Authority for Higher Risk Buildings in England. So you can find on and read it in full. It's good to see this now move into the stage where it's at we've covered this right from its infancy brian um we've covered everything all the way through back to the independent review of fire safety and and buildings uh, by dame judith hackett and and obviously post grenfell this is where this has come from and, and it's good to see it coming into fruition to the stage that it's at and the bits i want to add to it is according to the health and safety executive the building safety regulators new regulatory regime has moved further ahead in its vital registration programme of in-scope high-rise residential buildings that are at least 18 metres or seven storeys tall with two or more residential units. So building registrations for such structures are a major step in a package of measures designed to ensure high-rise residential buildings are safe for residents and users. The registration information provided by duty holders will be used by the building safety regulator to help the operation prioritise buildings for the building assessment certificate process from April next year. Depending on you listening to this, that is 2024. So principal accountable persons were given until the 1st of October, just gone in 2023, as a few days ago as we're recording this, to register all high-rise residential buildings in England. It's now an offence to allow residents to occupy unregistered buildings. So just commenting on this and I always like to share some quotes on this Brian the deputy chief inspector of buildings at the building said regulator commented and this is Chris Griffin uh, McTiernan that's amazing I managed to say that without uh, chipping up but I managed it we are encouraged to see that since the high rise Sorry, the High Risk Buildings Regulation Series opened in April. The majority of principal accountable persons have recognised their mandatory registration obligations. When the registration deadline was reached on the 1st of October, over 13,000 applications had been started. So Chris goes on to say, We're now urgently reminding the minority of duty holders who have missed this deadline for completing their registration application that they could face significant sanctions, including prosecution. They should respond to their legal duty by acting now and register to avoid action being taken against them. So, and that's obviously a message that we want to highlight as part of uh, the end of this story. It's really important if you haven't done that, you, you have a legal obligation to do so. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been obviously following the building regulator and now obviously building control authority right from the start. And um, yeah, it's taken a, another evolution and another step forward. So, as I say, always look at our website for latest news and we're going to move on to our next news story from uh well it's, it's one for me actually to cover it's my turn to say which one that i, I want to go over and and this is a particularly interesting one to me and i'll explain why to you in a minute it's aviva expands underwriting appetite to include engineered timber now we're going to talk about timber frame buildings here and, and the reason this is interesting to me is i did in a previous life uh work at the uh fire protection association who had a very strong view back then um on timber and sustainable building materials and uh, i'll just leave this in your thought before i read the story to you and, and go on to it that, that wood burns so insurer aviva has underlined its sustainability commitments by expanding the company's underwriting appetite to include engineered timber in commercial developments also referenced as mass timber cross laminated timber and glullum Engineered timber is a terminology used for wood products that have been manufactured and bonded together to form a complete composite material panel or building system. The news follows on from a successful pilot which saw the UK's largest insurer working with a handful of developers on sustainable building projects. In the UK alone, the built environment contributes 40% of carbon emissions. By working with contractors who want to build more sustainably, Aviva aims to assist the construction sector to reduce its carbon footprint. Although a growing number of developers are seeking to build more sustainable buildings for commercial use, insurer's appetite for these risks has not kept pace. By putting significant underwriting capacity towards these projects, Aviva is demonstrating the risk management can support the UK as it evolves to become climate change ready. In fact, Aviva is one of the first UK insurers to commit dedicated underwriting resources for the development of more sustainable buildings, working with contractors, brokers and owners from design 
design stage. The insurer is helping to ensure the resilience and repairability of these buildings by using leading risk management strategies to safeguard them from water damage and fire. Putting risk management at the centre of the design process can help to remove or otherwise mitigate these risks, while in parallel enabling a competitive and sustainable approach to insurance pricing. Now, I know you're going to have more to add to this, Brian, but I just want to put my two cents in here. I just want to go back to what I said at the start. Wood burns, <laughs> you know, and that's something that I have seen in testing laboratories, how quick timber frames go up in fire. We all know that total loss fires ultimately leads 90% of the time to a business never restarting. Now that's before we even talk about the life safety of individuals in there. I'm talking about property protection there. Now I do understand the need to use more sustainability and I'm more supportive of, you know, being environmentally friendly and, and really having a sustainability agenda. But I would not choose myself to live in a house that was, uh, built of wood it burns and i do not particularly support the idea of more and more big buildings which could also be housing hazardous flammable materials um for storage being done within buildings that are actually designed and constructed from wood because it burns i understand the need for sustainability but i tell you what is worse to the environment runoff from water when you have to get fire extinguishers out, you know, from the fire brigade, so the fire extinguishers to come out to put out a blaze as the building's completely destroyed and the runoff and the pollution into the soil and into the sky from the burning of wood. So on a, this is a personal view, um, based on what I've seen. I just think, if you talk about sustainability, we need to have buildings that are resilient, that don't burn, that are safe for occupants. That's my main priority on that. And, you know, I think, this doesn't necessarily help with that and it puts additional risks in. That's just my take, Brian. And, you know, I'll throw it back to you for some of the comments you might have. Yes, I'll start with a quote, Mark. Adam Winslow, the CEO for General Insurance in the UK and Ireland at Aviva, has said, there are a growing number of developers looking to build more sustainably, both by using sustainable materials like engineered timber and also by adopting modern methods of construction. Aviva wants to embrace both, in turn widening our underwriting appetite to ensure commercial buildings using engineered timber and using our risk management expertise to minimise associated risks. Winslow continued, we need to consider the carbon footprint of a building over its lifetime. If a building is designed to be replaced in the event of a relatively minor instance, well within its design life, then it cannot be considered to be sustainable. Modern methods of construction that focus on resilience and repairability are critical for helping developers balance their sustainability commitments with the safety of building users and the communities they inhabit. In its report entitled Building Future Communities, Aviva has called for strengthened planning regulation, greater collaboration on research across the building process, and the need to encourage and incentivise property resilience in order to aid recovery. By incorporating leading risk management strategies which go beyond the current building regulations, Aviva firmly believes that structures incorporating a greater use of engineered timber can be considered acceptable risks. As an organisation, Aviva has committed to become net zero by 2040 and to support the UK in becoming the most climate change ready large economy by the year 2030. One final point here, Mark, the August 2023 print edition of Fire Safety Matters contains articles referencing the issues discussed here. On pages 24 to 26, for example, there's an excellent feature entitled Sustainability Paradigm, which is authored by Judith Schultz from Arup. Further to this, on pages 56 to 58, Matt Wood from Millwood Servicing has written an equally excellent article entitled On the ESG Agenda. Of course, both can be read online by visiting our website at www.fsmatters.com and also accessing the digital edition. So, Brian, it's the time of the episode we'll be bringing on our first guest on this episode of the podcast. Who have you got for us? Our first guest on episode 34 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Steve McGurk, the newly appointed Executive Officer of the Fire Sector Federation. From October 2009 until June 2015, Steve served as Chief Fire Officer for the Greater Manchester Fire and Rescue Service. Prior to this, he served for 10 years in the same role at the Cheshire Fire and Rescue Service. A former Board Director for the Institution of Fire Engineers, Steve was recognised for his contribution to public service through the award of the Queen's Fire Service Medal in 2002 and the CBE two years later. He served as an expert witness during the Grenfell Tower Public Inquiry. Steve holds a first degree in politics and social science, an honours degree in fire safety, technology and management, 
and also a master's degree in management. During the course of our interview, Steve focuses on the ongoing and excellent work of the Fire Sector Federation and also outlines how the industry per se can best support its endeavours. Welcome to the Fire Safety Matters podcast, Steve. First of all, could you outline the Fire Sector Federation's key role in the fire industry for us? Yeah, good morning. Thanks, Brian. So I, I think the Fire Sector Federation has actually two roles emerging, really. The first of them is to, I guess, articulate or map out who exactly is in this thing called the fire sector. So I've been around fire and rescue communities and fire safety community for best part of 45 years and and these expressions get glibly used Uh, and very often people are clear there are some obvious people in it fire rescue services for example and your key players the institution of fire engineers fire industry association you could list probably 20 or 30 organizations that are definitely easily identifiable as part of something called the fire sector but then we've done an awful lot of analysis to try and scope this out and you start to realize particularly given the added complexity of a post-grenfell world on the back of dame judith hackett's work uh, paul morell's review into construction products the Grenfell Public Inquiry itself, Sir Ken Knight's team, etc. that in light of all that complexity, there are now many, many, many more players and stakeholders that have a, a real involvement in this thing called the fire sector. So we see ourselves as it's almost, a, if you like, a Google Maps for the sector and, and being a, at least one organisation that has a really clear understanding of the organisations that together comprise this thing called the fire sector. I guess our second role then is to to try to put in place a practical apparatus or or a set of arrangements that enable those different organisations to connect to each other in ways that make sense and to ensure that there are natural alignments that can uh, take forward, whether it's guidance, whether it's trying to persuade government of a need for change or try to make sure one bit of this thing called the sector understands what another bit of the sector is doing, which sounds incredibly simple, but you'll, you'll know yourself from being a fire journalist just how much is going on how busy people are and how hard it is for one part of the sector to understand uh, not just where the other part of the sector is at the minute but where the thinking is about where that different bit of the fire sector is going whether it's the way fire and rescue authorities are enforcing the regulatory reform order or the new industry competency council and the role of competency across the sector there are just so many things going on and i suppose the final thing to say on that brian is and we haven't even had the final report from grenfell yet which is due in early 24 and that is likely to have even bigger implications for the way the fire sector thinks about its future and the need for it to be much more integrated and joined together which is where i think we fit in and what progress have you made since the launch of the white paper calling for a national fire strategy to be devised I think we've made good progress. So uh, one of our directors, Tom Roach, is is leading on it with a group of a very multidisciplinary group of people thinking about that. We've met regularly with different departments of the government. Uh, we'll maybe talk about that later, I guess, perhaps. But we've had a very positive response. I think what's what's really changed, I guess, what, where it's more to, is one of the one of the issues when you can't talk about our national fire strategy is people sort of visualise a single document, don't they? A, a, a big thick document that tries to be comprehensive and map out the way we're all going to act in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Problem with that links the back to the, the, the kind of answer about the role of the Federation. The complexity of delivering a fire safe built environment and the players involved in that design, approval regime, the construction, occupation, you know, incidents will still happen. The complexity of that situation means it's highly unlikely that there will be a single document and if you did do a single document it would either be so big as to be almost unwieldy and unmanageable or so high level as to be so vanilla as almost not worth bothering beyond agreeing that we all want a safer society and some key principles like that. So I, th- I think what we've moved into in our discussions with the various government departments uh, and, and wider stakeholders more generally 
is that there's an agreed need for better national strategic thinking and that is where again we are looking to reshape our direction of travel to enable collective strategic thinking more collaborative strategic thinking uh, that takes a national a bigger context than just at a local or regional level and uh, that is definitely landing well with government as an approach to take and the kind of arrangements that we need to to do that are, are what we're thinking about now and following on from that steve what sort of response have you received from central government to date yeah, well, I, just, I just mentioned overall it's been positive. But of course, one of the problems we've got is, again, we glibly use the expression government as if as we glibly use the expression fire sector. And government itself is made up of many moving parts and many different departments. And so you've got the departments with a clear regulatory and enforcement responsibility, obviously the Home Office and now the new building safety regulator, which is, of course, part of the health and safety executive. But you continue to have local government in the shape of uh, building control departments and you know, to some extent planning departments as well. You've now got the OPSS, uh, the, uh, the product safety regulator, which will deliver some enforcement at the high level, but more, it will probably be much more locally delivered, almost certainly through trading standards departments of local governments. So product safety from a fire safe point of view sits alongside product safety from all manner of other points of view as well. So you've now got trading standards. So that bit of local government is involved as well. Over here, you've got DLUC involved in uh, remediation, design, you know, that aspect of it, which, which I know your journal writes up an awful lot about. And then running alongside that, you've got some outlying organisations, if I might use that expression, huge numbers of crown premises for which there's a separate inspectorate. You've got a defence safety inspectorate. And then you've got massive departments like education, which has its responsibility for fire safety in schools. And let's not forget the NHS, which has got thousands of premises with, with different guidance and different, uh, somewhat different enforcement regime. So it's essentially every single department of government really has a part to play in fire safety policy. We've realised we, and we haven't even talked, by the way, about devolved administrations of Northern, of Scotland, Wales, and to a large extent, Northern Ireland as well. So what that means is the response we've had from government is mixed and different levels of enthusiasm. And it's still very much work in progress for two reasons. One, they are incredibly busy trying to deliver the agenda of the Hackett reforms, BSR and so on. They're also now, they've got one eye to the reality of a likely general election, well, a certain general election next year. The question is when that election is going to be. Um, so that also adds to the level of complexity from trying to speak and get a consistent message from government itself. And then the third angle is each government department has its own agenda and they are also under pressure to deliver their bit of their own agenda. And so clearly we all would all like better joined up government, but that's um, that's a holy grail and has been for many a long year. The good news, though, is we've had overwhelmingly a positive response overwhelmingly agreement that it absolutely does make sense to try to uh, think together collaboratively and better at a national level and to try to implement things at a national level and we've had an overwhelmingly positive response that it will be really useful and helpful for an organization like the federation to play a bigger part in trying to help make sense of all the moving parts that, that sit around this thing called the fire sector. And how will the Federation itself work with what is a complex and fragmented sector to deliver on the proposed national strategy, Steve? So we, we're, we're doing a lot of deep thinking about that at the minute, Brian. Um, we realise we probably need to kind of change our shape um, and we're thinking about how we do that. Not not dramatically, it's not like we're going to come something completely different, but we, in recognition of, of everything that's going on around us, we, we're sort of just, just over 10 years old now. We've come to that point um, and it's, it's not unhelpful just having to sort of change out from executive uh, officer's point of view and also a chair changed last year. Just that sort of, right, where are we now? Where we come from we come from a very positive place we believe we've got a very positive future but it will probably be a, 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 as a theme it will be the same i.e joining things together and bringing organizations together but uh, it will require a very different apparatus 
we, you know, our website is is okay for for where we've been, but for example, the way technology is moving, we probably we almost certainly need a re, a new digital hub so that we can enable connectivity across the sector better than we can at the minute. We, you know, in a, in a post-COVID world, people are using Teams as well as physical meetings and webinars. There's a whole series of new ways that people engage with each other using technology and digitization and we need to figure out what our mechanics are what our practical arrangements are to facilitate that better as well as what our governance looks like to ensure that we've got the breadth of the sector uh working with the federation but it but in particular i think the real you know if you were to take one big message about the gap that grenfell has exposed it's the fact that the construction sector in, in all of its richness, whether it's construction products, whether it's design, whether it's the manufacturer products, whether it's installation, you know, construction, the construction sector has really not supported the need for fire policy thinking to be embedded in the way that with the benefit of hindsight, they probably should. And that's essentially what Judith Hackett's report says. And what we now need to do moving forward is to make sure that there's a real alignment between the construction sector in all of its roundness and diversity with the fire sector. And those two sectors are working together in the future in the way that we probably haven't been for, for quite some time. And that's not to say anybody's done anything wrong. It's to say that we, we owe it to the, the tragedy of Grenfell to make sure that we've learned better lessons for the future. In your opinion, what are the main obstacles the sector needs to overcome? I think... Um, there are plenty of obstacles uh, for, for the fire sector in, in delivering some of this. And we could probably spend all day talking about the obstacles. I think it's probably two or three big obstacles I'd point to. One is the level of complexity and the speed with which a lot needs to happen quite quickly. And the risk that that is added to even more when the phase two of the Grenfell report comes out. If you were to add up the number of recommendations contained within the Hackett reports, phase one of Grenfell, Sir Ken Knight's work, the Morell review, the fire reform white paper, I might have forgotten one or two other documents. And then I have no idea how many recommendations will be in the final Grenfell report, but there's going to be a significant number. We'll probably run to many hundreds, if not more than a thousand recommendations emerging from the various reports associated with the with the tragedy of Grenfell. And we'll have a, a new government of some way, shape or form in less than a year's time or around about a year's time that will have its own agenda. And whether all of us in the fire community think it's incredibly important, and it is, but so too from a government point of view are things like the cost of living crisis the war in ukraine we've got an election in america that's going to have some really interesting impacts on the uk uh, a whole series of geopolitical international issues that are going to have a massive impact on the time and space available for governments to deliver on on those recommendations and the fire agenda so i, th I think that complexity is, is a massive obstacle I think what that then leads to is what I think is a second obstacle, is that the fire sector can be fragmented. Different organisations are driven in many different ways. Some have commercial drivers, some have legal drivers. There are some big membership organisations. There's a whole set of phenomena driving different organisations within the fire sector that, that inevitably lead to fragmentation and a disaggregated way of thinking. And I think helping folks get past that idea or not seeing one bit of the sector as more important or less important than another or necessarily one big organization being uh, allowed to dominate thinking simply because of size when actually there's some really good thinking coming from all parts of the sector so so getting past the, the multiple drivers of different organizations to get them together in what we would describe as a safe setting or a safe space to be able to think together and at least form good national strategic thinking and, and better fire safety for, for society really and then those same organisations can step back outside into their commercial world, their legal world, their enforcing world and be competitive uh, and deliver on a commercial agenda but against the backdrop that there's been a, a very helpful and useful exercise on thinking, which means that society is going to benefit overall. I know that sounds a little bit like motherhood and apple pie, but our goal fundamentally is about public safety and trying to help 
different organisations that, of course, want better public safety, but they've also got other drivers as well, uh, to see this as not an either-or situation, that you can be both commercial and work towards better public safety with other partners. And I think that is the, probably the second biggest obstacle, getting getting colleagues to get past some of those drivers uh, into, into a shared space together. And going forward, Steve, how can the fire industry itself actively support the work of the Fire Sector Federation? Two big ways. One is keep an open mind. My earlier point about different bits of the fire sector can be precious. It's not it's not massively different to other sectors, but it's a phenomenon in life generally that people get really, really strong views um, and feel minded to assert them in a very, very forceful manner. And that's great. You know, some people some people can call that passion. Some people can call it antagonism. You know, it depends on, on, on how you feel about it on the other side. So, you know, what would be really useful would be uh, open mindedness and and a recognition that we're probably going to come up with better solutions working collaboratively than we are necessarily working individually. So that's that's the first uh, way to help. And then secondly, and because sometimes that can get in the way that uh, if there's one organisation, none of our kind of board directors are, are paid. They're all volunteers. They come from backgrounds. There's a genuine interest in public safety. Uh, I think you know, maintaining the idea that it is in a in the whole of the sector's collective interest to have at least one organisation that hasn't particularly got any agenda other than trying to improve public safety. And I think the third the third thing I'd say on that is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Often government, uh, one of the challenges I, I, I talked earlier about how a government responded to this, one of the honest conversations I've had with different departments of government is this idea what, what government says is what we need is a, is a sector to speak with one voice. We want consistency from the sector. And my challenge back to government is, well, that'd be really good if we got consistency from the government. I outlined earlier just how many government departments there are with a fire policy aspect or, uh, or, or responsibility. And so I think we need to be authentic that says we can narrow down perspectives, narrow down conversations to a workable number and a kind of much smaller number of really key issues that governments need to think about. But the idea that we can corral such a diverse group of complex organisations to come up with one is, is fanciful. If we ever did, it would be so vanilla and almost not that be worth writing down to start off with. Yeah, I, I think what we need is, is a recognition that we can make a lot of progress and if it's not perfect then let's change and adapt it to fit the new circumstances instead of just kind of anchoring something in as if it's going to be there for time immemorial and so that flexibility would be would be really useful don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good let's move uh, further forward see where we are if we need to change direction again let's do that and let's keep making progress to the news now and in the year after the building safety act became law awareness of the benefits of fire door third party certification is growing but the proportion of certified fire doors in use has apparently dropped slightly that's one of the key findings exposed by new research conducted for the british woodworking federation's fire door alliance the survey of 1000 individuals across the uk with direct responsibility for fire door specification installation and maintenance found that over half 52 percent in fact now look for third-party certification, as opposed to other means, in order to provide proof of performance for a given fire door. This is a higher figure than the 46% recorded in 2022, when the same audience was surveyed. Two-thirds, i.e. 66% of interviewees, said they're more likely to seek certification as a consequence of the Building Safety Act, while 92% stated that the traceability of a complete fire door assembly is important. That last statistic compares with 89% in 2022. These attitudes could indicate that new legislation aimed at increasing accountability is actually starting to take effect. Despite the growing awareness of third-party certification and greater intention to specify third-party certified fire doors evidenced by these figures, this hasn't yet translated into a higher uptake. Last year, respondents suggested that 56% of the total number of fire doors for which they're responsible are third-party certified. The 2023 figure is actually lower at 54%. Helen Hewitt, who's the CEO of the British Woodworking Federation, has commented, 
It's clear that new legislation is having an impact on attitudes towards traceability and accountability in fire safety, which is hugely positive to see. For fire doors specifically, we're witnessing a greater understanding of the benefits that third-party certification can deliver in terms of aligning with the intentions of new legislation. Hewitt went on to state, however, the study findings highlight something of a disconnect between greater awareness and intent and the number of third-party certified fire doors being specified. This is concerning and pinpoints the belief that more guidance and training support is needed to increase uptake. Further, Hewitt has noted, we do anticipate that as legislation leads to more robust systems over traceability, we'll see an increased demand for third-party certification. Certification provides robust proof of performance and traceability of a fire door's components, its manufacture and subsequent journey through the supply chain. As such, it's a ready-made solution for complying with new regulations. What points do you have to add to this particular story, Mark? Well, it's a mixed bag, Brian, from my point of view. You know, there's an increase in awareness, which is good, but it's still around the 50% mark. There's still a long way to go. It is fair to say that it's moving in the right direction, but it'd take a long time to get to 100% of this rate. So I think I agree with the sentiment that, you know, perhaps more guidance is needed on this. You know, it's, it's a topic that certainly is catching imagination. We just did a webinar in the last week which was, are your fire doors compliant, reducing the risks and navigating regulations? We had 2,800 people involved in that. And, and a week before that, we had done another one on uh, hospital fire doors, which uh, you hosted as well. And there's a great, great interest from our audience in this. And I'd strongly encourage anyone that hasn't to go onto our website, fsmatters.com, or just Google in a search engine, whatever, Fire Safety Matters, and click on the webinars tab of our website. And just go and watch these webinars on demand. They're completely free. This CBD accredited by FireQual. You'll get be able to download a certificate with your name on it, a CBD certificate. Please do watch it because they can add far more intelligent insightful and educational content than, than I probably can to this. But, you know, there's, there's a bit more to the story I want to cover as well. So while the impacts of legislation over attitudes and intent appears to be significant, the research also highlights areas where further education and guidance is needed over implementing the new laws. Some 30% of respondents were unsure of or otherwise didn't understand the responsibilities in terms of the new legislation and pointed towards the need for more support. And I think that probably highlights uh, my thoughts that I made earlier. Despite 78% of respondents having read new fire safety documents published by the Home Office to assist the responsible person in fulfilling their obligations, only one third expressed the belief that more information from the government would improve understanding of their responsibilities, Brian. That said, not all guidance is expected to emanate from the government. 39% of respondents want to see more from employers, while 55% said that there needed to be better training support. So I know that we've obviously uh, quoted already Helen Hewitt, but I will do again on this. And she says the Building Safety Act is still in its relative infancy and it's only natural that there should be an adjustment period in terms of meeting these requirements. The onus isn't just on organisations or individuals themselves to comply, though. The process also requires the government, employers and the fire safety and building industries in general to continue to provide education and support in navigating what are major changes. Only by treading this path can we make buildings safer for all. So I want to move on to our final news story of this episode before you uh, bring in our final guest. And uh, our good friend, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, makes another return to the podcast. It feels like we have covered the Mayor of London quite a bit um, in uh, previous episodes and uh, on the website. But Sadiq Khan has demanded urgent action from Housing Secretary Michael Grove as new figures show that the government is holding up the delivery of new homes in London by leaving house builders in the dark about impending new fire safety requirements. Ministers first proposed rules requiring a second staircase in Utah buildings in December last year in response to the Grenfell fire of June 2017. And just before I go on, something I completely support. I mean, when you talk to people in Europe and the rest of the world, they actually can't fathom that tall buildings don't have more than one staircase. So, you know, for evacuation purposes, I completely agree that there needs to be uh, more than one. So in a speech delivered back in July, Michael Gove committed to this major change for new tower blocks over 18 metres tall and promised a transition period that would ensure there is no disruption to housing supply. 
However, new data issued by City Hall reveals there are now 34,000 homes on major developments being held up due to a lack of clarity from the government on these new fire safety requirements. The figures only includes the biggest developments, i.e. those that require mayoral planning sign-off, in turn meaning that thousands more homes will be affected on other smaller developments across the capital. With construction costs rising rapidly and developers already warned that they could be forced to down tools, this delay from the government could, according to Mayor Khan, cause some schemes to be abandoned altogether. The mayor has used his London plan and funding programmes to go further than the national building regulations with a push towards greater building safety, for example, requiring sprinklers and a complete ban on combustible cladding on all new homes. Local authorities and housing developers currently have no guidance on what the promised transition period will cover. Further, they haven't been informed what technical requirements they will need to meet to satisfy the new rules. So, for example, whether the two staircases will need to be entirely separate or whether they can be contained within the same building core. Um, personally, I would hope they would be entirely separate. Um, so, Brian, is there anything else you want to add on this story? There is indeed, Mark. This perceived quote-unquote lack of clarity from the government comes at what's an already challenging time for house building across the country. The mayor wrote to Michael Gove warning that housing experts are forecasting a major drop in house building driven by high interest rates and building cost inflation, which could actually see house building across England drop to its lowest levels since World War II. It could also put the capital's house building boom at risk. In recent years, City Hall has completed more homes of all types than at any point since the 1930s built more council homes than at any time since the 1970s and exceeded its target of building 116,000 new genuinely affordable homes in the capital by the end of the last financial year. Sadiq Khan has explained, while I strongly support the highest 550 standards for new buildings, the chaotic way in which these new rules are being put in place by the government is now holding up the delivery of thousands of homes across the capital. We've made huge progress in London since 2016, but we still have a long way to go in order to fix the housing crisis. We simply can't afford this confusion caused by the government to slow down crucial housing delivery in our city. Mayor Khan has continued, ministers must cut through this bureaucratic dither and delay to urgently bring clarity on these new fire safety rules. This should be done alongside the other steps we know are needed to help fix our housing crisis, including investing the £4.9 billion per annum the capital needs in order to meet the demand for new, high-quality and genuinely affordable homes. Stephanie Pollitt, the Programme Director for Housing at Business LDN, has added, Building more residential developments at pace is vital for combating London's housing crisis. The government must provide urgent clarity on building regulations to enable developers to build the homes that Londoners need. Providing this certainty is critical to help the industry deliver high-quality and well-designed homes that meet the highest of safety standards. It's worth noting here, Mark, that copies of the Mayor of London's letter to Michael Gove are available on request via email at economicdesk at london.gov.uk. So, Brian, that's the news cover this week. And like I always say, you can go to our website, fsmatters.com, or through your search engine, Fire Safety Matters, and you don't have to wait for this podcast to get all the latest news. All the latest news, prosecutions, products and services, and in-depth articles are available on there. You can also sign up to our weekly Uniester on there as well. Or you can sign up to get the magazine for free, or, as many of you do, you can go on there and look at all our upcoming webinars or look back at some of our past webinars to watch on demand for free and get a CBD certificate. You can also follow us on X or LinkedIn. So the final part of this episode is our second guest. And who have you got for us, Brian? Our second guest on this edition of the podcast is Derek Hall, Director of Sales and Marketing at Life Safety Control Systems Manufacturer, Kentech Electronics. Derek joined the business in late 2018, armed with 20 years' experience of operating in the fire detection and fire alarms arena. During a 12-year spell as head of fire products with Siemens, Derek was responsible for launching the very popular Cerberus Pro solution into the marketplace. Indeed, Derek's career underscores a steadfast commitment to innovation and excellence in the fire safety industry, underpinned by a fervent passion for saving lives and safeguarding property. On the podcast, Derek references several areas, among them the Solihull Community Housing Project and how manufacturers can adapt to meet regulatory changes.
Many congratulations on the success of the Solihull Community Housing Project, Derek. We've actually featured this project on pages 36 to 38 of the August edition of Fire Safety Matters. What technologies were used and which part of the project would you say impressed you the most? Okay, really good question, Brian, and thank you very much for the opportunity to be on this podcast. The Solihull Community Housing Project uh, did represent a few different um, issues for us, but uh, we used um, our latest wireless technology called K-Mesh to overcome many of the problems associated with it. In in total, the project was about 4,000 detectors, and they were all linked to a combination of Tactis and Synchro AS analog control panels. All of these um, panels were then connected to a remote um, station, so giving the end user um, up-to-the-minute information about um, different events going on in in the properties. On a similar note, Derek, what issues and challenges did you face when considering this year's scale of this project? It is pretty big. It's actually a number of live properties, so in total 37 tall buildings. So we've got to think about um, the application, which is um, with lots of different people from different types of communities and also with uh, different um, requirements in terms of evacuation from the building. So when you've got such a large number of um, floors and individual rooms, you've really got to consider how best to evacuate those buildings. Importantly, it was all about um, fire safety system protection. But one of the biggest concerns for the uh, the building um, owner was actually trying to get the project done very quickly, but at the same time, maintaining the structural integrity of it. Because with a wired system, you very often have to have lots of builders works. Now, those builders works could be drilling holes. It could be compromising fire compartmentation. And with a wireless system such as K-Mesh, you don't have those considerations to think about. It was very complex convenient for the end client, but of course it didn't disturb the occupants of the building in quite so much the same way as a wired system would. Now, Solihull was actually our biggest installation to date, and we supplied the product to our um, Kentech installation partner called Early Birds. They're pretty good at doing this kind of stuff, and they've done quite a few projects with K-Mesh. So for them, it was um, a really quick and simple job to actually get in and out of the apartments. And I think the end client, Solihull Community Housing, was accepted pleased at how how well they managed the project and how they worked with the the occupants of the um, individual apartments and flats. So this particular site with with nearly um, 37 buildings over a five mile radius, there was different types of occupants as well. And one of the many challenges that we had was actually looking at how do we evacuate those people with either neurological or sensory needs. Now, traditionally with fire alarm systems, a loud sounder that goes off in in, in a room, but we know that some people don't actually respond particularly well to loud noises. So we had to think of alternative technologies to help them evacuate safely. Obviously, meeting the needs of of these different resident groups and ensuring their safety was not only challenging, but with extensive consultation with the end user and the installer, we were able to come up with a solution that met the problems. So I think that it was all about trying to identify their specific needs and come up with the right product and the right um, solution for their application. But is there a benefit to installing different life safety systems, for example, detection and or extinguishment or evacuation panels on one site? And is it the case that installer training renders this a more streamlined process do you feel? Well I think that um, from our side with the, with the Kentec technology the whole product platform and portfolio is designed for ease of installation but also for the installer to be more familiar with our different range of products so because they're from the same family the actual learning curve for them is, um, is, is actually quite shallow it doesn't take a long time to get your head around our products and become experts on them. Now of course in the um, application for tall buildings there are lots more considerations and different ones to um, an extinguishment system. But because you know one product range, you can actually jump into the next product range very quickly because of the familiarity and the similarities between them. And where does a fire detection solutions manufacturer such as Kentec fit in with the life cycle of a building or indeed a series of buildings, Derek? I think that Kentec has always been very proud to make products that last a long time. In fact, most of our analog addressable systems, we would expect an average life um, cycle of about 20 years. Now, one of the things that Kentec actually did when it um, phased out the synchro panel was made sure that our own our newer products actually had full backwards and forwards migration capabilities. We're actually the first manufacturer to achieve this or even attempt to achieve it. So if you have a network of synchro panels, you can replace one panel at a time using our bridge functionality, and then you can upgrade to the latest technology called Tactis. This is really important for an end user because you're not having to replace the entire system in one massive financial hit. 
the financial burden is then spread out over many years according to the phasing and um, actually the budget constraints that the end user might have. This is really good for our installation partners because they're not forcing an end user into making a huge purchase when it comes to the end of a particular product. So Synchro had been around for 20 years, but we're still actually managing to migrate it via Tactis and extend its life cycle for probably another 20 years as well. What does the future of fire detection look like from your own point of view? I personally think that fire detection is probably at the peak of its technology. You know, we have all of these um, new types of devices coming out with multi-criteria elements, including CO. So when you have a device which is looking for slow and fast smouldering fire uh, um, phenomena, also heat detection and even CO, you probably actually have a very reliable detector. I think the challenge now on the on the market is to is to come up with detection technology that not only reliably detects fires but also eliminates false alarms. We know that from the fire brigade and also from the industry that false alarms is a big problem for um, um, for end users. I can't remember the exact amount of money that is actually wasted on false alarms, but we're probably running into um, a couple of billion pounds each year in the UK. I think the pressure will be on manufacturers to come up with more reliable detection, but also detection that doesn't force alarm. Now, the other trend that we're seeing is where there's a labour shortage in in our industry, um, people are asking for fire alarm systems to be installed much more quickly. Now, with K-Mesh and our wireless technology, this is making it a lot more easier for installers to um, find the required skilled labour, but also achieve the, um, the same objective much more quickly. So in comparison, a wireless system might, may well take only two or three days to install, whereas a wired system might take um, two to three weeks. So I think that there will be a massive trend towards wireless systems because of um, installers are accepting it as being much more reliable and end users becoming much more familiar with it just in everyday lives. So I think that wireless systems will be the future for um, fire detection and alarms. And what moves can the industry make to protect building occupants from fire on a more effective basis, do you feel? Not only do I work for a manufacturer, but um, I'm an occupant of many buildings. And you've got to have trust and belief that the fire alarm system is going to react in the way that you expect it to. So if there is a fire, you want to be evacuated very quickly. But likewise, you don't want the fire alarm system going off because of a false alarm. When it comes to adapting to regulatory change and reform, what are the key responsibilities of industry manufacturers such as yourselves? Kentech and every manufacturer out there has to comply with the necessary EN54 standards. As a manufacturer, that puts um, a great deal of obligation onto us to ensure that the, um, the reliability and the quality of the products are there. But we're actually very limited by what we can do because a standard is written in a certain way and we must comply with it. Otherwise, we can't legally sell in the UK or the European market. I think what we're finding now that um, fire alarm systems are being adapted for different applications. On the back of the Grenfell tragedy, um, fire alarm systems are now being used for residential and domestic applications, whereas previously they wouldn't have been considered. With the stay put policy, a fire alarm system wasn't required. And I think that, um, again, with the K-Mesh system, what we're finding that there's a hybrid approach to not only detection of fires, but also the evacuation of those buildings. So BS8629 was actually developed as a standard outside of our traditional standard of BS5839 Part 1. BS5839 Part 1 doesn't really fit the residential and domestic market, but 8629 is a standard for helping installers and designers and even manufacturers come up with a solution for evacuating these tall buildings very quickly. I think the feedback from them, our installers is that as we go through this transitional phase of removing the cladding from um, from walls, we're having to have a, um, a combination of a fire detection system, but also an evacuation and alert system. And I think that this is where Kentech is coming from in that um, although it doesn't meet either standard, there has to be a hybrid approach and a transition between removing the cladding, but you have to have a fire system in place, avoid having a waking watch um, approach. And then eventually when the building has had the cladding removed, you can then remove the fire detection elements of it. Personally, I think that this is a much better approach because it's given an end user an opportunity to go through this transitional phase because they can't find the money instantly to either remove the cladding or um, have a fire alarm system permanently in place. 
So wireless systems, again, are really coming to the forefront in showing that they can be extremely flexible in solving that problem. What positive impact is being exerted by independent manufacturers like Kentech in the wider context of fire detection? Ultimately, we're all in the industry to save people's lives and protect people's property. And I think that um, Kentech and all other manufacturers have a moral duty to make sure that the products that we're putting out to market are fit for purpose, but also um, solving the problems of the industry. Kentech's approach, again, has been slightly different to other manufacturers in that um, not only are we, are we looking to comply with the relevant standards, but we also have have the flexibility to look at um, alternative approaches because we are an end-to-end manufacturer we can basically design and build panels which are bespoke for an application so it doesn't limit the end user to a single um, approach you can have a little bit more flexibility about what you're really trying to achieve especially when it comes to um, evacuating people and I say one of the things that comes up every now and again is not just putting loud sounders into people's um, um, apartments because we know that there's a, a huge amount of people that don't respond to large alarm sounders going off. They need additional help because of their neurological or sensory needs. So K-Mesh as a product is not only about um, detecting and alerting occupants in the traditional BS5839 Part 1 style, the smart guide devices, which also have um, flashing LEDs to wayfind and help people evacuate the building, but it also has a voice recorded message. This voice recorded message, as we know, helps people react more quickly to a fire event, but it can also be tailored to an individual's need as well. So bespoke and personal messages, I think, are going to be very useful for those people that don't respond to traditional alarm sounders. And last but not least, Derek, we've heard on the grapevine that you're planning to run for election to the Fire Industry Association's Board of Directors. We wish you all the very best with that process. Why have you chosen to do this exactly? Uh, Brian, I was actually trying to keep that fairly quiet, but at some point it's got to come out. Um, um, when, when, I, when I started in the um, in the industry, uh, probably going back about 26, 27 years ago now, I never really thought that I would be um, looking to stand for election. But I think that too many people um, that are close to me have said, maybe it's time I actually did this. So uh, I personally think it's a polite way of them, them saying that um, I'm probably been in the industry too long. I'm getting too cynical. But for me, it's an opportunity to help develop the industry. Um, I've always wanted to see it become a much more professional trade and to also give people an opportunity to develop skills and um, and learn a trade. From what I've seen in that um, 27 years, often people just stumble into the fire alarm industry and they may well be transferring from other engineering trades. But unfortunately, too many people have no industry background or engineering background at all. This is really important for me because as an ex-electrical and electronics engineering apprentice, I had a, I had a pathway into engineering. I've never made a connection with fire alarms because there was no obvious route to achieve it. And I think as an industry, again, we've got um, a real shortage of skills and labour. And it's really important that we ensure that our industry is recognised and equipped for the future, especially as personal responsibility and liability will become even more on the agenda. So I think upskilling the people that we already have in the industry is going to be really vital, but also attracting new and younger talent. And I think that getting apprentices in is a really good pathway for them to achieve that. So why do I think I could become an important uh, member of the board? Well, I do have an opinion. Um, it is based on 27 years of experience in the industry. But I also think it's um, really important that we recognise that um, the UK market is actually made up of lots of small companies. And I think we need to make it fairer. So all too often, the bigger boys have too great a say in what's going on in our standards and what's going on in our industry. But actually, it's made up of many smaller companies and I think they need a voice. Collectively, they are the largest part of the UK market and um, Kentech does its best to support and represent them. And I think I can help them achieve that as well. brings us to the end of episode 34 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to our special guests on this edition, namely Steve McGurk from the Fire Sector Federation and Derek Hall of Kentech Electronics.
You can read more on the issues raised in this edition of the podcast and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website. The web address you need to access is www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content delivered in the podcast and found it informative. Please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming editions. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG and also access our LinkedIn page at Fire Safety Matters magazine and website. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.